Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. My name is Chris Burke. I'm a physical therapist, and I serve as the chair-elect of the DDC. I'm here today with Dr. Debbie Backus and Dr. Laura Rice, who are here to talk to us about their research with individuals with MS and fall risk. So welcome to both of you. We're glad to have you with us. So what we would like to do first is ask you to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your professional background. So Debbie, why don't you go? Thank you so much for including me in this discussion today. I am a physical therapist and my PhD is in neuroscience. Um, right now I am VP of Research and Innovation at the Shepherd Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Shepherd is a, a rehab facility where we treat people with spinal cord injury, brain injury, multiple sclerosis and related conditions. Um, I'm also director of multiple sclerosis research and I've been doing MS research for about the last 12 years. And the focus in our work is really aimed towards helping people with greater disability be able to have a healthier, more functional life and better quality of life, um, specifically people who are in wheelchairs or have severe disability um, with their walking uh, due to MS because they tend to be those that are underserved in research and clinically. And so that's what we really have focused on. So I'm really happy to be here today to talk about this with y'all. And Laura? All right. Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, my name is Laura Rice. Um, I am a physical therapist and my PhD is in rehabilitation science and technology. I am an associate professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and I direct the Disability Participation and Quality of Life Research Laboratory. Um, our whole lab is focused on looking at ways to improve quality of life and community participation among individuals who experience disability, uh, developing interventions related to fall management, fall risk is a, a real interest of mine. I have been focused in this area now for about uh, about 10 to 15 years, uh, so it's it's been a nice long journey for me. Thank you so much. We're happy to have both of you. So I think specifically what we're going to be talking about today is full prevention and interventions in people with MS who are non-ambulatory. So I, I'm interested first in how both of you got interested in this topic. Why the um, non-ambulatory group? Debbie, you go first. I am uh, heavily influenced by my background in spinal cord injury rehab as well. So clinically, um, you know, right out of school, I treated people uh, with neurologic conditions, with spinal cord injury and MS. And then when I first came to Shepherd, treated people with spinal cord injury. And as I transitioned into the clinic with MS, it was remarkable to me how similar they were, but yet they were treated very differently. And over the years, you know, um, when I went and got my PhD and I was out of MS for a while, when I came back, it was really great to, to see that there were all these disease modifying therapies and um, that the management of MS had advanced so much, but there still was this um, weird kind of inattention to the needs of people and um, who have MS who are in wheelchairs. And from my training in SCI, 
with people who are in wheelchairs. I just saw so many similarities. It didn't make sense to me. And so having studied people with SEI and using different interventions for that population, it just made sense to me to start doing the same kind of thing and asking very similar questions in people with multiple sclerosis who were dependent on wheelchairs for mobility. So it was a very, it made so much sense. And then when Laura, who I know you'll hear more about which about her interests, but when she reached out and had these similar interests about how to help people with MS in wheelchairs um, be more functional and have fewer falls, it just made sense that we would get, you know, collaborate together on this issue. And it seems like such an under-researched topic, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it absolutely is an under-researched topic. And uh, so I have had an interest in individuals who use wheelchairs and scooters for a long time. Um, When I was in physical therapy school, I did a clinical rotation in an inpatient rehabilitation center in Pittsburgh. And um, it was on a spinal cord injury unit and just kind of totally fell in love with, with kind of that segment of the population, individuals who use wheelchairs and scooters, and really felt that this is an area that I can have a, a positive impact. Um, so my research, similar to Debbie, um, kind of started uh, among individuals living with spinal cord injury. Um, and I did a lot of research focused on transfer biomechanics and propulsion biomechanics. Um, but I also continued my practice as a physical therapist, and I primarily focused on uh, wheelchair seating. And so I'd have a lot of clients come in and talk about falling, and um, they'd ask me, what should I do? And I could certainly give them advice kind of from, you know, my experience as a physical therapist. But then I looked at the literature and there really, really wasn't uh, too much in there. Um, So I did a systematic literature review and my suspicions were confirmed. There really wasn't much there. Um, So I thought, wow, this is an area that I can really focus on. And similar to Debbie, you know, I did a lot of research among individuals with spinal cord injury, and that was great, but also, also kind of saw these similarities and was just by struck by what little uh, work had been it was being done among individuals living with multiple sclerosis, even like anything at all, not necessarily related to fall risk. Um, So again, I felt like this was an area that I could be uh, very impactful. um, And unfortunately, I was able to connect with Debbie. um, And I think we've had a lot of a lot of really interesting studies and, and had some interesting results along the way. That's interesting that you're both involved in spinal cord injury and have morphed into. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so let's talk first more about people with MS in full risk. Um, and does the research show that individuals who are ambulatory or non-ambulatory are more at risk of falls? So they're really pretty different. So if you look at the numbers, um, they're they're probably pretty similar, probably a little higher among individuals um, who ambulate. However, there's a really big misconception that when a person starts using a wheelchair, 
we're good. Um, and then you don't need to do any additional training. Um, but our previous research has shown that about 75% of the population have experienced at least one fall in a uh, six month period of time. Um, so it's, you know, it's a really large percentage of the population. And then we also talk to people quite a bit about their experiences with falls, assistive technology, and they really don't get a lot of training on fall prevention, not a lot of assistive technology that's specifically been um, kind of uh, customized to them. Uh, so it was a really significant area of concern. Yeah. And I would think, Laura, I don't know if you agree with this. One of the things that to me is astounding is how much we take for granted that they have the chair, so you're not mm-hmm. going to be worried. But take for granted things like transfers mm-hmm. can go horribly wrong right. for this patient population. Um, uh, the impact of their fatigue and miscalculating, you know, that short distance, I just have to go in my home, you know, because they use wheelchairs for a reason, but then they're in their home and they miscalculate um, just how tired they are. Um, and And people don't think about that. Absolutely, 100% agree. And we've done some studies looking at circumstances surrounding falls and actually these short bouts of ambulation. So the participants in our study were all individuals who use a wheelchair or scooter full time. However, a lot of people said, well, because of like inaccessibility in my home and stuff, I do have to walk short distances. Um, And that was one of the areas that um, a lot of falls were occurring. And I think clinicians, they're they're not kind of taking into consideration that even though this person is using a wheelchair full time, they still may be getting up. They still need to navigate areas that aren't accessible. And um, and they certainly are having falls with transfers and so on as well. But um, that those short ambulation bouts were where they were having problems as well. Yeah, I find that that's so true in what you're saying, because you have this population that's they're degenerating. So they were ambulating, right, at one point and maybe haven't kept up with making their mm-hmm. home more accessible as compared to someone else who's had a spinal cord injury that, you know, this was a, a situation where they had to change things. So that's interesting. Did you find that there was a difference or do you even know a number of falls between people who are wheelchair users who um, have a spinal cord injury versus MS, because you talked about Debbie, MS, you know that we have to deal with the fatigue and sometimes there's cognitive issues and they are maybe taking a step or two. So we did do a paper that we did a direct comparison between individuals living with spinal cord cord injury and multiple sclerosis. Um, When we look at the numbers, the percentages are about the same. Maybe, yeah, they're they're pretty much the same. They're a little bit off. And then we also looked at any differences between circumstances in falls. And the majority of the circumstances were similar. So things like transfers, uh, poor balance. But then we did see in those individuals living with multiple sclerosis, these short bouts of ambulation causing uh, more of the falls. Among manual wheelchair users, we saw more issues with wheelchair skills. Um, Kind of my hypothesis with this, I couldn't prove it from the data, but perhaps they're engaging in perhaps more higher level skills um, compared to individuals living with multiple sclerosis, uh, but that's that's kind of just my opinion. <laughs> so we as clinicians, um, if we were thinking of what potential risk factors we should be evaluating for, what would be some things to keep our eyes out for? 
So we did do just recently did a paper where we were looking at predictors of falls among individuals living with multiple sclerosis. And from the data that we have, what came out as um, kind of the most significant predictor was actually past falls. So uh, the number of falls the person experienced in the past six months. Um, so that's a really important conversation to have with an individual, asking them about their fall history. Um, but with that being said, um, I think certainly looking and talking with them about some of the common circumstances associated with falls and asking them if they're having challenges with that. So for example, uh, we've said it multiple times already, but transfers are a very common circumstance. So I think going back and, and kind of talking to people about their transfers, um, another issue is wheelchair skills. Um, if they're having particular problems with particular skills, kind of looking back at that. So I think having a nice conversation about some of those activities in particular is very important. Yeah. And I think also remembering to ask them if there are times that they walk those short distances. You know, I think with spinal cord injury, oftentimes people, they're not walking short distances, right? They really need their wheelchair and they're not, they're not tempted to get up when they shouldn't if they can't walk. And that's not the case. People with MS sometimes are using wheelchairs who still have that capability. It's just that they're not always totally safe in every environment. So even just having that conversation with um, the patient is going to be very important to understand what risks they might take um, and what they're dealing with when they get home. Okay, yeah. And so besides some of these predictors that you've mentioned, which are great, is there as a, you know, if I'm evaluating someone who's non-ambulatory, is there any outcome measures you, that you recommend that we should focus on or utilize with this group? Um, so a couple of different ones that we commonly utilize. Um, so fear of falling is really part of this picture. Um, and it's um, an important thing to evaluate. Um, unfortunately, there is not a fear of falling outcome measure specific for individuals living with multiple sclerosis. Our team is actually working on a more generalized fear of falling outcome measure. But right now we use the spinal cord injury fall concern scale. Um, and we've actually used that quite a, a lot among individuals living with MS. And, it, and it's appropriate measure. The questions are pretty common. Uh, so that's that's a nice one. Another important outcome measure that we use to assess balance is the FIST, the function and sitting test. Um, and this is a nice, uh, nice assessment that the, per the person is in a seated position. So we can look at actually a lot of really functional movements that they do, such as reaching, bending down. Um, I, I think it has a nice approximation to kind of real life activities that people do. Um, we actually have done some work to validate using the fist remotely, so via Zoom. Um, and we felt, found pretty good results. Uh, but doing that, um, we want to make sure that there's a care partner with the individual um, to maximize safety. And then just one other item I'll, I'll note is the transfer assessment instrument or the TIE. And this is an outcome measure that allows us to objectively evaluate transfers. Um, so it's not how much assistance the person needs. It looks at the quality of their transfer 
transfer. Um, and so we've found kind of poor quality is the person's at higher risk of falls. Um, so that's a ni another nice outcome measure that can be utilized. Again, we've we've looked at that, both uh, the validity of that in person and then also via Zoom. Again, important to have a care partner if you are doing it remotely. So I'm not really familiar with the uh, transfer assessment eval, the mm -hmm. tie. Is it more like a task analysis that you're doing? Um, it's numeric grades that you give for certain components of the transfer. Um, so all components of the transfer, yeah, are, we break the transfer up into very small components, and we grade each of those individual components. So, for example, the person gets a grade based on um, how they position their wheelchair next to the surface that they're going to be transferring to, where they position their feet, their hand placement. Um, this actually stems from some of my work related to transfer biomechanics. So it does, it also um, can, you know, give information on injury prevention as well. Uh, but it, it can give you a nice sense of the overall quality of the transfer also. Good. Okay. So let's switch gears and let's talk more now about interventions because that's always what our listeners are always so interested in. So did you do you have any thoughts on effective interventions for this population to reduce their falls? Uh, yeah, so that has actually been the majority of our work that we have done related to multiple sclerosis. So again, kind of, as I mentioned in the early, earlier in the podcast, I, I talked about, I did a systematic literature review early on. And when I did that literature review, and I was just looking at wheelchair users in general, and I only found one intervention study that was specific um, related to fall management among people who use wheelchairs and scooters. Um, so we have done quite a bit of work um, developing an intervention that um, we've really worked hard to make it comprehensive. So we try to target fall prevention. Of course, that's our number one thing. We want to stop falls from occurring, but we really also help people kind of manage falls in general. So we have a pretty big section that is dedicated to um, post-fall management. So what to do after you fall, how to get up, how to kind of deal with all of that. Um, and we we do a lot focus on the person's environment. So making sure that's safe, um, assistive technology, talking about different pieces of technology that the person can utilize to maximize their safety. Um, so this is still a clinical trial, though. We've we've done several pilots um, iterations of the study, um, and we've found that it, it certainly has promise. Um, and we've we've continued to refine the program, um, and we're hoping to do a larger scale study in the near future. Um, I would be happy, though, to share our website. We have materials online. Um, anybody can use them if you do use them. Um, I, all I ask is if you just let me know so I can know that, that people are using them and I would appreciate any feedback. I just will note, you know, this is still kind of clinical trial area, um, but we've found pretty consistently throughout the process that people are safe using this program. The program is led by a physical or an occupational therapist. So it's not something that people can do um, independently. But if therapists are looking for materials to utilize with their clients, their patients, they're certainly welcome to use these materials. So the pro program is called iRoll. Um, and I'd be happy to provide the link as well. 
And are you hoping to disseminate this information in other ways besides just your website? Like, for instance, we here at the DDSIG do fact sheets, and right now we're working on MS and exercise. So what a great topic, you know, MS and fall prevention. Um, yeah, absolutely. We would love to see this program, you know, after we get a lot of data looking at the effectiveness of the program, we would love to see this be a community-based program. I do think having the therapist involvement is very important and it is a, it is kind of a very structured program. So it probably would always need to be somewhat housed, maybe through the university or maybe through a rehab center such as Shepherd, um, kind of housed within, you know, kind of a, a pretty standardized manner so that we can connect the participants with the therapist and kind of form the groups together. Um, but certainly, I think components of it could be disseminated in a lot of different ways, certainly through maybe another um, Certainly through journal publications, for through consumer-based um, publications, guidelines, and so on. I think there's a lot of options for it. Did you find in any of your pilot studies that you saw a reduction, a significant reduction in falls? Yes. So our first two pilots, we did see a reduction in fall frequency. Um, in our larger studies, we did not see specifically a reduction in fall frequency, but we saw a lot of findings uh, such as reduction in fear of falling. We saw improvements in functional mobility skills. We've also got a, a lot of subjective feedback from the participants indicating that they feel like they're falling less frequently. They also talk a lot about their confidence kind of going towards fear of falling. Um, probably our, our overarching outcome for the study is improving community participation. And that has been great to see. Um, we we did we started this pre-COVID and then we did a, um, an arm during COVID and we didn't see as much change in community participation. But when we do it, we did do it pre-COVID. Um, people were getting out and about more. Uh, so one participant, for example, talked about um, being able to go to sports activities that their kids participated in. So like a lot of meaningful engagement. Um, and so that was really wonderful to see that that people were, were really getting that out of the program. Great. And how are you measuring the community participation? We use the community participation indicators outcome measure, the CPI. And we also, in addition to using the CPI, we also do interviews with the study participants. Um, and that's mm -hmm. where we can get a little bit more of this nuanced information. Right. A lot more of your qualitative. Mm -hmm. Great. And for your for your research, is it are you doing one on one interventions? How frequently are you doing it or is it group? Yes. It, intervention. Yes. So it's a group-based program. We typically have two to five participants in the group. It's actually a six-week program. Um, so we we originally did the program in person, but now it is online. Um, so all our videos of the instructional materials are posted online. Um, and again, people are free to utilize those. Um, and, and so we have a nice opportunity. The participants can watch the videos asynchronously on their own schedule. And then every week we have an opportunity for uh, the study participants to come together with a therapist um, and talk through the items. They can get feedback through for from the therapist. Um, they can uh, we've encouraged people to send in pictures or videos of them performing functional mobility activities um, so they can get feedback on those as well. 
I had been I've been involved a lot in full prevention, but mostly with the older community um, and Parkinson's and part of the stepping on program or the Otago. And there it's a lot of what you say where we talk about it and we figure things out and we analyze it. And but there is a small exercise component. Is there an exercise component to your program too? There is, yes. So at the beginning of the program, we introduced the exercise program. And so then throughout the whole six weeks, we help the participants refine it, give them feedback on their um their strategies that you're they're using. Uh, we also provide different levels for the individual. We kind of present the initial exercise, but then we provide recommendations of ways to make it harder and make it easier as well. And are they mostly seated exercises or are some of them in standing? If, if yes, um, they are all seated exercises. Um, we encourage the participants to sit up without back support to do them. They are mostly focused on core musculature um, and also upper extremity. And again, we have, depending on the person's level of disability, um, they can modify them based on their own specific needs. Uh, we do encourage the participants to do the exercises kind of seated without back support, uh, but we also give them strategies. They can do them in their wheelchair. They can do them lying down, um, really trying to meet the participant where they're at. Christina, one of, one of the things that you um, mentioned um, that I think I'd love to highlight is the exercise component and how important that is. And I know we saw it in this study, we've seen it similarly in another trial, which is not with people in wheelchairs, but with people who can have significant um, impairment in their mobility. And uh, it it's an exercise trial. And we that was a comment that came up from several participants is that since they were stronger, when they fell, they could get up now. And that was having mm -hmm. a huge impact on their lives. And there's no reason to expect it would be different for someone in a wheelchair. They need to be stronger so they can obviously um, help themselves if they fall. And I think that's a really um, sometimes underestimated variable with people's confidence. Absolutely. That's a good point. And so thinking back to me as the clinician working with this population in regards to interventions, is there things that I should be focusing on like moderate to high intensity or aerobic training or more sitting balance, or should I, if they can get them up and standing and work balance? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Want to elaborate at all? <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. Just like any of our patient population, right? You know, if they have weakness or endurance problems, then they need to have, um, you know, strengthening and endurance strengthening activities. They need to have the cardio if they can get it. And if they have balance deficits and the bot and really what it comes down to, um, Christina, is yes, addressing those and they can show improvements, which I think also there's still this common misconception that um, people with MS, because it's a progressive disease, they can't make improvements, but the literature is really just totally, right? We know right? The so I don't, I don't mean to be too um, glib with that response, um, but Laura said it too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I, obviously, you know, that's, that's our cardinal role with being a physical therapist, meeting the client where they're at. And I, I think there's so much that, that can be done. And, 
again, the literature shows, you know, we can, we can have an aggressive program and people really can make changes. And are you concerned at all for the person who's the primarily uses a scooter, right? And their goal is they want to walk more and maybe you focus on that, that maybe would, are you fearful that with this slight increase in confidence, they might have more falls because they're attempting to get on their feet more? So we really work hard to try to get people at a good level of fear of falling. So too much fear is bad. Too little fear is bad. We we do a lot of education about kind of assessing the situation, determining if it is safe for you. How can you maybe do this in a little bit safer way? Um, so we really work hard to try to get to to kind of that middle ground. Uh, but certainly, you know, if we if we increase the confidence too much, um, there is that concern that that maybe people would be falling more frequently. But again, we we do really try to get people into kind of that that happy space in the middle. Good. That nice Goldilocks zone. Exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's any relationship between frailty and falls in MS. Well, your question about frailty and falls is a good one. And uh, uh, Jake Sosnoff has um, is, has published on this. He and, and his colleagues have published on this issue of falls and frailty in people with MS. And in one of their recent papers, they reported that roughly a third of people that were in their trial, the, I think the, at the end was 40, um, were classified as some level of having some level of frailty. And that they in, looked at this with the frailty index, which is basically looking at, you have a, a set of variables associated with, with frailty. Um, a common number is four. And based on how many of those the person has, that gives you a frailty index. So if they have 10 out of 40, then that gives you that index. Um, and what they found was that there was a significant relationship between frailty and history of falls in people with MS that was independent of their age, their sex, or their disease severity. And this group was not wheelchair-dependent individuals. They are wheelchair people that were using wheelchairs um, for their mobility. It was really... Um, people with EDSS scores between one and six. So these are people who were really either very functional with their walking or just start, you know, having some difficulty with their walking, but not in wheelchairs. So there does seem to be a relationship and um, supporting that frailty is something that should be looked at in people with MS and certainly in, with respect to falls. Yeah. Okay, great. And I'll just add on to that as well. We um, so Dr. Sazanoff and I um, did another paper where we did specifically look at individuals um, who were uh, using wheelchairs or scooters living with multiple sclerosis, and, and we just looked at frailty in general. And we did find that all of our participants in that cohort um, were met either the criteria for severe or moderate frailty. So, so that group is. Is, um, is very high on that frailty index. Yeah, and it seems like most of the frailty scores that I've seen were re related to people who are ambulatory, right? So that oftentimes they would look at things like sit-to-stand ability yeah. and gait speed or percentage of weight loss. 
So was it modified for those who are wheelchair users? Yes. Yeah, so um, some, yes, yeah, some modifications did need to be made to the scale. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So coming back to our therapist, who's maybe seeing an individual with MS who uses a wheelchair primarily, any advice for them, especially if they haven't worked with this population a lot? Yeah, I think really, you know, asking that question about a history of falls in the past and then from that kind of kind of digging deeper, um, I think it would be important for them to become familiar with circumstances surrounding falls. Um, and that that information is in the education pages uh, that we have published. Um, and so things like transfers, uh, wheelchair skills, um, poor balance. Um, we also have a lot of individuals who experience falls when reaching, which goes along with balance, of course. Um, so I would I would um, recommend, especially for somebody new to the area, you know, ask about those history of falls and really hone in on those common circumstances associated with falls. Um, and I think that will get you a long way of, of really making a positive impact on the individual. I would agree with that totally. And also, I think starting with no assumptions about what they can and can't do, because I, I know I did it myself, you know, they're in a manual wheelchair or even a power wheelchair, assuming they don't have certain abilities, but in fact, finding out what their potential is, what they can do and getting them started exercising as soon as possible, finding that way that that person can exercise. Um, there, there's obviously modalities we can use like functional electrical stem and cycles and all that, but there are other ways that people can exercise. And so finding those tools, helping people understand that they can safely exercise and overcome their fear of adding physical activity will also go a long way to helping them in terms of falls, but overall health and function, as we all know. Yeah, that's terrific. I, I, I love that. I say that to my students all the time, like raise the bar, your patients will rise to it, right? Don't put your own limitations on them. So this was a terrific discussion. Thanks you both. Um, I think it'll be very enlightening for our listeners. Um, before we let you go, though, we have this tradition here at um, for our podcast for the DDSIG that we asked our guests to share with our listeners, what they like to do for fun when they're not working. So, um, Laura, if you would like to share first with us. Sure. Yeah. Um, if I am not working, I like to be outside. I like to do things like hiking, biking, um, sailing, skiing, uh, pretty much anything that will get me out of the house. I am, I am very happy to do. I like to be out of the house too, but I also, I love a good weekend away, going to a city I don't know, exploring um, the area and the restaurants and uh, the music, the music scene, um, and finding out more about the people there. Um, And preferably with my family, definitely my husband and, you know, friends, but if not, I still like to do that. Terrific. Great. Well, thank you both for sharing. Um, So that's all. So thank you again to our wonderful guests, Debbie Backus and Laura Rice. And we hope you come back and join us another time. Absolutely. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks for having us. 4D is produced by the AMPT Degenerate Diseases Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Tom Padgett, 
Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Harley Haverd, Ken Benaco, Jeffrey Schmidt, and I am Subscribe to our newsletter on the AMPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague. Special thanks also to Jimmy McKay of the PT Pinecast for providing music. And thanks for listening. Bloopers are the best part. Are you speaking from experience, Parm? No, of course not. I would never do that. I don't look like one of those cute podcasters with their headphones. Stop. <laughs> I was going to ask that, but I didn't know if that was appropriate for the podcast. <laughs> Nobody ever says, I sit on my couch yeah. and watch reality TV. <laughs> Nobody admits to watching Netflix. I watch a ton of Netflix. I love watching TV. Me too, actually, yeah. Take out all the stuff where, like, it sounds bad. Oh, no, we're leaving it all. <laughs> but I the don't only even... way we look good is to make you guys sound bad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> don't listen to her. <laughs>